Hey there, everyone, and welcome to Twin Movies. I'm Ben Phelps, and I'm joined by my regular buddy in banter. Gabe Derrick. Hi, Ben. Howdy, howdy, Gabe. So, every year, Hollywood releases two movies based on the same idea. So, each week, as always, we ask the big question, which movie did it better? Today, we'll be reviewing two classic, not sure they're classics yet, two classic twin movies about an ordinary man who gains superpowers when he becomes the host of a malevolent being. It's Upgrade versus Venom. Let the contagion begin. So let's kick off this episode with an overview of these twin movies and a flashback to our first encounter with them. On the 1st of June, 2018, Upgrade was released. Here's its IMDb synopsis. Set in the near future, technology controls nearly all aspects of our life. But when Grey, a self-identified technophobe, has his world turned upside down, his only hope for revenge is an experimental computer chip implant called STEM. So Gabe, did you originally catch Upgrade when it was released? I think on VOD, wasn't it? And how was that experience for you? I didn't see it at the cinema, but it didn't get a cinema release. Is that right? I don't think it did in Australia. I got a release through Blumhouse's sort of micro-releasing title, Blumhouse Tilt, in the US, but almost a simultaneous video-on-demand release. In Australia, I don't think it got a release here. Even um, though it was a at Australian a production, it got no- That it didn't alleviates uh, guilt, I feel, having not had seen it at the movies, so- on some level, perhaps this is good news because I was going to extend some sort of apology to Mr. Winnell that I missed it at the cinema because I enjoyed it a lot on uh, when I rented it on streaming. Well, it definitely was released at the Sydney Film Festival on the 7th of June, oh. 2018. And it tells me here on the interwebs that it was released on the 14th of June in Australia, but it doesn't actually specify whether that was a theatrical release or video on demand. Right. Well, I saw it on demand. Yeah, so did I. And to be honest, I think it's one of those films that, like the VHS era before it, totally benefits from that kind of home experience. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, you know, it was made for, and I suppose we'll get to this a bit later, a relatively small budget. So, watching it on telly at home, you wonder if some of the effects would hold up on the big screen. But at home, yeah, it totally sort of feels like it leans into that kind of loving homage to kind of B-pictures of the 80s. And I should say B-pictures, not in a bad way. You know, it's sort of like that high-concept, gritty, grimy, Terminator 1-esque thing, right? Yeah, that's actually a really good reference we'll get to in our review. But it does feel like Terminator in many ways in relation to its high-concept, but set in the real world or the not-too-distant future. And the technology is very practical. It's visual effects opposed to computer effects and feels very grounded. And I think is unashamedly of that kind of horror slash sci-fi B-grade genre, which is a genre that many people experienced on VHS. I'd be interested to know how much of this was done practically, were practical special effects and how much were visual effects. Obviously, there's a lot of visual effects in the movie, but it feels like there's a lot of neat in-camera tricks And, you know, to be honest, that's the sort of stuff that I really love in movies. But, yeah, look, I watched this at home. I've seen it a bunch of times at home since. It's a pretty replayable movie. So, that's how I caught it. Were you the same? Yeah, I'm the same as well. I had heard all the hype about it. I recall when it was actually, I think, funded by one Australia's government 
financing agencies. So I'd sort of hungered to see this film for a while before it was actually even made, yet alone released. So I was really anticipating it. And, you know, Lee Wanao has got a pretty great track record. And I was keen to see what they could do with a $5 million budget for a film set in the not-too-distant future in America, but shot in Australia. And so, for that reason, and based on the great reviews at the time, because this film was very much an under-the-radar film that I discovered had only been released when I heard a few podcasters and YouTube reviewers talking about it. And that kind of reminded me that was coming out. And so, that's how I actually caught it. But this film, I think, was in many ways the antidote, excuse the pun, to the much more bombastic and ludicrous Venom, yet a similar kind of a premise, which is why I think it got a bit of tension as well. Mm, It's interesting that this pair is a twin movie. In fact, you wouldn't immediately think of them as being similar. But then when you mentioned it, it's like, oh, yeah, I guess these two movies do have a a really kind of- Like, you know, we've done movies like Saving Private Ryan and um, Thin Red Line before, which I guess- were released in the same year and have the same genre, but are actually very different movies about different things. These two movies are actually much more similar than you'd think, right? Yeah, 100%. One of the reasons why a new upgrade was coming out was because some YouTuber cut together the trailers of Upgrade and Venom together. And it was incredible seeing these trailers side by side, how similar both films are, and making them feel even more similar is the fact that the lead actors, Tom Hardy in Venom and um, Logan Marshall Green playing Grey Trace in Upgrade, look so similar that these films look like clones of each other. And different concepts in some ways, like one film's based on alien life, another one's based on a technological implant. But other than that, very, very similar films in terms of the... Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde dynamic between the human protagonist and his alien or technological implant. Totally. The befuddlement is your body takes over and wails on people is pretty common with them both, right? Totally, totally. So, later on, on the 5th of October 2018, Venom was released and here's its IMDb synopsis. A failed reporter is bonded to an alien entity, one of many symbiotes who have invaded Earth. But the being takes a liking to Earth and decides to protect it. Kind of a lame synopsis, I think, for Venom. But talk me through how you first watched it and where. I did not see this at the movies. I'm not really sure why. You know, it might have just been a comic book movie that I just skipped in the, I don't know, what do you call it? The mush of them all. For whatever reason, I didn't. I watched this on Amazon Prime or something. And, you know, I've seen it once or twice But there is no great tale with this one, I'm afraid. Sitting at home on the couch watching it. What about you? Well, before you go on, Gabe, we do know there are three states in which you watch films. (laughs) There's conscious. Yep. There's drunk. And what's that third state you mentioned recently when discussing enemy versus the double? Hypnagogic. Although I, I believe I'm still pronouncing that wrong. The state between wakefulness and sleep. This I did not watch in a hypnagogic state. It doesn't really lend itself to that. It does lend itself to watching it while getting pissed, though. A couple of beers, getting a little buzz on, enjoying uh, Mr. Hardy's performance. So, I have to admit, I have, in fact, watched it in that state. Okay. I watched it sober at the cinema. I was really keen to see this film because it looked like it could be a darker 
sillier version of the Marvel films. And the Marvel films, you know, the 23 films in that 2008 to 2019 run, have increasingly felt very cookie-cutter, very similar, very safe. They look aesthetically the same. There's the same kind of level of humour. There's the same depiction of violence, lack of sexual references. They're very neutered films. And I was excited about this film because it wasn't a Marvel film, which means it could have been absolutely terrible, but at least it was something different. It wasn't this whole DC versus Marvel punch-up. It was just something entirely off to the side. And it actually had, on paper, great cast, like Tom Hardy. I mean, he's got acting chops and is quite well-respected. You've got Michelle Williams, Riz Ahmed. Oh, I love Riz. Jenny Slade, Woody Harrelson on paper. Like, a lot of <laughs> actors who you think, oh, okay, if they're doing this film, it must be okay. So, I saw it at the cinema, you know, like Thursday night when it first opened, actually, and- I had a great time, and we'll get to the reviews in a sec, but I did not respond at all in the same negative way as many film nerds and reviewers did. I really had a good time with this film, and I think it knows exactly what it is. So, based on that, let's do a quick shallow dive into the Hollywood history of these two films, and then we'll circle back to doing a comparative review. How does that sound? Hit me. So, Upgrade's a cyberpunk action body horror film. Now, I mentioned earlier it's by Lee Wanell. And Gabe, catch our podcast listeners up to Lee Wanell's pretty impressive CV. Well, I mean, I suppose most famously he wrote and starred in the original Saw. He and James Wan, you know, created that huge horror franchise. But he also wrote uh, Dead Silence. Insidious, and he directed, right, The Mule? Did he direct The Mule? No, he didn't direct The Mule. No, I he, think he, he no. wrote it. Yeah. Right, right. And, yeah, I mean, he's a sort of pretty prolific Australian um, writer and director now, having uh, just, I think, finished principal photography on The Invisible Man. Yeah, this film really kicked things up for him. He did um, Insidious Chapter 3, and that was his first directing effort. Upgrade was a step up in relation to being a unique property something that he wrote, that he directed, I guess had more ownership of. And I've got to say, it's worked out gangbusters for him because he's now doing The Invisible Man with Elizabeth Moss, which is like, I guess, a reboot of this attempt to do the, quote, dark universe, which is the world building of all those various monsters like Frankenstein and Dracula and so on. There was the uh, effort with 2017's the Mummy starring Tom Cruise, which was meant to kick off, I guess, this huge big budget action version of these films. And that failed. And so they've kind of rebooted the entire concept and gone through Blumhouse for a lower budget version, starting with The Invisible Man. So, yeah, it has worked out for Lee Wanell. So we'll get to how this film came about now, I think. This film was made to $5 million, as I mentioned earlier, shot in Australia, taking advantage of a favourable currency conversion and the fact that many Australians can make films, which may actually have American accents, American locations, if the majority of the uh, key creatives, like the producer, writer, director, are Australian. And I really love the fact that they made this here. Like, it's sort of set in a nondescript world, I think. It doesn't actually say which city it is, does it? Not that I can remember, but yeah, like, a futuristic American city, I suppose. Yeah. So, a shot in Melbourne 
and it premiered at South by Southwest in March 2018, and uh, it won the Midnighters Award. And then it kind of had this sort of release through video on demand, and it actually came sort of second at the box office, which we'll get to the other Blumhouse tilt film called The Darkness, directed by another Australian, actually, Greg McLean, he of Wolf Creek Horror. So that's the background upgrade. It used to be called STEM, by the way, if you want to do some Googling to see the origins of this film. Now, Venom, much more complicated backstory. Where do we start? So, Gabe, what was your first encounter with the character of Venom? Was Venom in the Spider-Man cartoon that they sort of had in the 90s? I'm not sure. Yeah, he was. He was? was. Okay, probably there. But I suppose most people remember Venom as played by Topher Grace in... Raimi's third Spider-Man movie, which sort of famously Raimi didn't want Venom in it, right? And then was sort of forced by the was it the studio or the producers to stick this character in, which led rise to sort of emo Spider-Man and all of that sort of stuff. So pretty comical. Yeah. Unfortunately, I think that whole process resulted in Spider-Man 3 being as terrible as it was. It's not that um, terrible. At, well, if there wasn't Venom, it's arguable there wouldn't have been emo Spider-Man, and if there wasn't emo Spider-Man, there wouldn't have been Peter Parker doing cool dancing, and when I say cool, I mean not cool, on the streets of New York City. So, it's not that bad, but, and I actually thought that Topher Grace was fantastic playing Eddie Brock, and I really enjoyed the character design and the visual effects of Venom in Spider-Man 3. So, at that level, it worked, but basically, they've been trying to get a Venom film going for a long time. It started back in 1997 when David Goya, he of Blade and also the director of Blade 3, the screenwriter and story creator behind Man of Steel and The Dark Knight, he was hired by New Line Cinema in 97 to get it going. And guess what? Dolph Lundgren was in oh, yeah. talks to star. Wow. And that would have featured Carnage as the main antagonist. Anyway, it didn't move forward. And so, long story short, for basically about 20 years, it went in and out of development until they squeezed it into Spider-Man 3. Later on, they were going to try and have another film after Spider-Man 3, but they had to reboot the Spider-Man franchise. And the plan then was to have Josh Trank step in to do it just after Spider-Man 2, or the amazing Spider-Man 2, I should say. Unfortunately... The two Amazing Spider-Man films didn't do so well, so all those plans were scrapped. And then when they finally did Spider-Man version 3, the one with Tom Holland, the current one, in conjunction with Marvel, they then decided to spin off this whole Spider-Man universe with various heroes and anti-heroes from that world, but not actually in partnership with Marvel and not connected to Marvel's Cinematic universe. So, have they said Spider-Man, Tom Holland's Spider-Man will never appear in a Venom movie or something? Have they made Well, that- apparently they shot scenes with Tom Holland for Venom. Really? But Marvel actually, yeah, asked them to not use those scenes because the at the time it was going to be a USR-rated MA15 classification film and it was going to be darker and have more swearing and more violence. That was the pitch, basically. They got everyone involved. It got- Tom Hardy involved, got the director involved. Everyone got on board the fact that they're going to basically do a Deadpool-like film. But essentially, Sony then kind of got a bit nervous and decided they could make much more money by targeting all four quadrants of the audience by making a tamer PG-13-slash-M film. So they watered it down. 
But still, even with the same rating, it was tonally too different to the Marvel films. So on Marvel's request, they yanked that scene featuring Tom Holland. And later on, Amy Pascal, Sony producer, did say that there could be a crossover in the future. But then later on, that was retracted. So at this stage now, they do not share the same universe, Spider-Man and Venom, and they're aren't plans than a crossover. That scene with Tom Holland has never been released, has it? No. Right. I don't think so. So, that's the background to Venom. And also, I guess the other key issue to mention is that because they didn't have Spider-Man involved, that to change the origins of Venom as well. So, you might recall in Spider-Man 3 and sort of just general legends about the origins of Venom, Venom's an alien symbiote. Or symbiote. Symbiote who comes to Earth, is first in contact with Spider-Man, which is how Spider-Man gets that black Spider-Man suit. But once Peter Parker realises that essentially he's being mind-controlled by Venom, he gets rid of him, and then Venom finds another cocksure reporter, Eddie Brock, and Eddie Brock and Venom bond together, and thus Venom becomes a hero, and in some version of the story, an anti-hero, to Peter Parker's Spider-Man. But in this story, in the absence of Spider-Man, they essentially stick with the whole alien origins, but skip Spider-Man's involvement. And so, that's why Venom doesn't actually have any kind of spider-like iconography, like an insignia across his chest. He just has like these white external veins that look spider-web-like, and kind of allude to the character's design of Venom in the comics, where he had like a black Spider-Man-esque outfit, but it's not as overtly Spider-Man in its references because there's no connection to Spider-Man in the story. Well, that makes sense, I guess, in a standalone film where Eddie Brock is the main protagonist, to have him sort of get this, I don't know, power secondhand from Spider-Man And if Spider-Man is only a sort of cameo, it'd be a bit weird. So, actually, it kind of feels like it makes sense to, if you've pushed Spider-Man aside, just to really make it so as the symbiote takes over him in a way that makes him much more integral to the kind of overall plot, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it does feel, again, excuse the pun, very organic in the way in which the powers of Venom appear in the film and how they are represented on screen. Like, it- he has the capacity to jump around without webs and I guess a form of superpower. So he's similar to Spider-Man, but doesn't shoot webbing in the same way or have that kind of same sort of feature where he sticks to walls with sticky hands. He just kind of like grabs onto concrete walls and climbs them. Yeah. So let's jump to a review of both these films, shall we? And let's kick it off with a review of Upgrade. Tell me, Gabe, what worked and didn't work for you about Upgrade? I really like this movie. In fact, I really, really like this movie. It's one of those, like, made for a low budget, but very visually inventive. Like, you'd never know this cost $5 million to make. It's kind of high concept in that it's about a guy and AI takes over him, but kind of, like we said earlier, sort of low concept and gritty in that Terminator way. You know, I really love kind of like an A-grade, B-grade picture, and, and this for me is that. I think it's a lot of Australians also really working at an international level of craft. I think the photography by Stefan Duschio is really good. The cutting by Andy Canny is really good. The music by Jed Palmer is really good. 
It's well written. It's well directed. The performances are all pretty committed. Yeah, I really enjoyed this movie. I wish us Australians made more of these kind of films. I agree with everything you've said 100% and more in some respects. This to me is a great example, you say, as to high concept, low budget. It does everything right in that regard. To me, it's a textbook example for film school students as to how you can have a high concept, a engaging high level premise and then execute it on a really low budget. I mean, the fact that this was made for $5 million is pretty impressive. I mean, like some of the visual effects and the wall stitched together are fantastic. What they do really well, which so many films of any budget should do more of, is that they choose interesting locations, found locations, and then stitch those together through editing. So you'll have, say, for example, this formation of two rocks on a hill by the seaside to be the entrance to this bizarre madman's underground mansion. And they'll cut to like an incredible stairwell and then an amazing foyer. And they're all ostensibly actual locations where they've just filmed those actors walking through each of those spaces and then edited them together to try and create the sense that this is one house. And it's just such a simple thing to do, but it works really well. And Melbourne has some spectacular public architecture, like concrete structures uh, with great sense of height and space. And I feel this film's taken advantage of some of that incredible architecture and then shot at the right angles with the right choice of lighting. It does suit very much the aesthetic of a future not too far from now and also a fictional world but something recognisable at the same time. So that works really well. I think everyone, as you say, is at the top of their game in terms of the craftsmanship. That works really well. The one part which I don't understand is when they refer to this being B-grade, and you mentioned it being a combination of A-grade, B-grade, it's sort of funny, isn't it? Because I don't think someone like Lee Whannell, who's made a career from horror films, and horror is a genre that's known for being B-grade, I'm not sure if he would like to be called that. I'd say he's pretty happy with it. Well, I'd say he's pretty comfortable with the genres he works in. But what makes it B-grade? That's the part that kind of throws me. For instance, I know he, Mr. Winnell, really doesn't like the term elevated. So I know he doesn't like it when um, people have to make excuses for genre movies. So let's say, for example, the expression is, this is an elevated horror or elevated yeah, thriller. Yeah, you know, and that might, someone might describe a movie like Hereditary as elevated horror. You know what I mean? Like, it's not just- Rather than just good horror. Yeah, exactly. I agree. I think elevated is just a terrible term said by people who are somehow ashamed that they're making a, a genre movie. Look, I use the term B-grade in kind of a, a loving way and that this feels like a kind of grindhouse exploitation movie and it's sort of unashamedly that. And that's one of the things that I feel like this movie gets really right. Like, I love the gore in this movie. I love it how this movie is just very violent. And when we get to Venom, we'll talk about this. But it feels like Upgrade is like fully committed to its – I guess it feels to me like it's fully committed to its – B picture premise or whatever. But yeah, look, if Lee Winnell might not like his movie being described as B grade or whatever, and I certainly don't mean it in terms of it being a second class movie or anything like that. I guess I just mean it in terms of it being like a fun exploitation film that's sort of part Cronenberg body horror, part 80s sci-fi, all mixed together with a very kind of modern sensibility and use of camera and things like that. So yeah, 
I do not mean it as a slight. That makes a lot more sense to me. Now that you describe it as B-grade in the sense of being exploitation, now I see where you're coming from. Beforehand, I keep hearing the word B-grade and I think it refers to a badge of quality. But what it's actually referring to is really the genre, like the types of genre that often refer to as exploitation in a endearing, loving way. And sometimes it's because the effects might have been B-grade or the production values are B-grade but the story or the characterization itself isn't necessarily B-grade. Yeah, yeah. In a way, A-grade, B-grade is the highest honour a film can be bestowed. You know, but also- How do you define A-grade, B-grade? Oh, just, mate, upgrade is pure A-grade, B-grade. No, but also, you know, it's that thing where it's like its budget was small. And you think of those exploitation movies of the past, you know, they were often made for low budgets. And like, I think earlier in the pod, you said, are these movie classics? And- you can really imagine in 10 years or whatever, Upgrade being a total cult classic. Yeah, I agree with that. I'd say going forward, I'd define A-grade, B-grade as A-grade concept, B-grade budget. So, B-grade refers to the budget, not necessarily the quality. We don't have to overthink it. <laughs> Whereas you actually say that Venom is the opposite of that, right? B-grade, A-grade. Venom has obviously massive budget. What was the budget for Venom? Oh, we'll come back to that. Let's finish massive. our review of- Yeah, let's finish our review okay. of Upgrade first. Let me tell you a few things that work particularly for me. There's inventive use of technology to kill people. So the whole idea of having a gun in your forearm, it's just ludicrous, but it does look cool. It is so crazy to think that there's actually a gun and when you hold your palm open, spoilers, there's actually like a muzzle there. It seems so unnecessary, but it is one of those ideas where you see it and think, why hasn't someone done that already? Gun hands? Oh, I'm sure someone has. Well, we see that scene in Mission Impossible Fallout, where in the trailer you see Superman himself, Henry Cavill, kind of like do that double load pump with his arms. Cock his guns. Exactly. He's fisty Whereas these are actually real guns. So, that's fun. There's also a scene where you see that character, Fisk, deliberately cough a series of nanobots that have basically hooks inside the mouth of Clayton Jacobson's character to try and kill him from the inside. That's pretty cool. So, some of those ideas about body modification are very much in that David Cronenberg world, aren't they? Definitely. And this movie's not really afraid to lean into some of that stuff. I mean, but there's also this great kind of like sort of Evil Dead 2-esque slapstick elements, you know, when Logan Marshall Green's character, Grey, sort of first allows Stem to take over his body. There's that great fight scene where he's doing those sort of confused faces as this guy, as this sort of his assailant or whatever, is frantically trying to hit him. And, you know, that sort of stuff really reminds me of that really great, yeah, Bruce Campbell smashing plates over his own head in Evil Dead 2. Yeah, totally. And we should actually give a huge shout out to the stunt choreographer and Stefan, is it Stefan Duskio? Duskio. Duskio. Because for a $5 million budget, to be able to use a visual style that we haven't seen before in the same way is pretty unlikely. And in this film, they do that. In some ways, many have described it as Matrix-like in the same way that we saw for the first time the bullet time effect where the camera spun around Keanu Reeves as he's leaning back to avoid being shot. There's that effect where they basically lock the camera to the main actor 
and he remains in the centre of the frame. And it's similar to effect we've seen before in films like Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels and Snatch by Guy Ritchie. But it is different. And it's a great visual technique that's very hard to describe now on the podcast, but you must see it to believe it, where it definitely does convey the sense that Stem has taken over the body of the main character. And he is essentially just a passenger yeah. in his own body, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, that's and right. And you feel that as the audience. You feel you're a passenger to these this jerky camera movement. In fact, if you want to see a similar effect, if you watch the 2019 TVC TV commercial for Apple EarPods, it's an effect where basically you lock or track something to the centre of the screen and everything else moves around. But in the case of that particular commercial – the earpods remain in the very centre of the screen, no matter who they cut to from character to character. Similar type of visual effect, and it's really, really clever. And I'm actually really impressed that, again, on a budget of $5 million, it's actually A-grade execution and very much in the spirit of this film. And I think in a heartbeat, quickly conveys the disorientating experience for the character of Grey Trace once he kind of succumbs to Stem's power. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'd say if I had only a tiny quibble with this film, it's that in a way its action peaks early. Yeah, I agree. In that they use that first scene is sort of so memorable and the stunt choreography and fight choreography is really great that the action never really tops it. But it doesn't really adversely affect the film or anything. And I'm really kind of reticent to, to criticise it for this, especially, as you say, the budget. But yeah, I mean, that first fight is so well executed and so memorable that when you get to the later showdowns and stuff, although those fights are good, it never really hits those kind of giddy heights again. Yeah, I feel that they put all their money on screen in that first scene to blow us away, but they probably didn't have the budget to try and do that later on down the track. And so they decided to basically kick in early and then they ease off. It's a shame because I think you could have had the same effect and potentially amplified it even more in subsequent action scenes. But nonetheless, at least from the very start, they set the rules of the game as to how this works if you're the host of this malevolent separate being, and that works really effectively. There's even small details that are really clever, like his head can move separately because stem is below his, I guess, around the middle of his back. And so there's a great part where Stem actually grabs Gray's head and moves his head with his own hand out of the way to avoid being punched. Do you recall that part? Yeah. It's quite odd. So you kind of wonder what's he doing? And the reason he's doing it is because Gray, Stem can't control Gray's head. So Stem has to move it manually himself to avoid being punched. It's a small detail, but it's quite clever. Now, in terms of other details in relation to body horror and so on, I think there's also an inventive use of killings. And okay. that, I guess, ties back to Lee Winnell's vast experience in doing horror. Like, there's a great scene, spoiler towards the end, where Grey stabs Aaron Keane, played by Harrison Gilbertson, in the head by essentially just mushing his hand, which has a knife already in it, into the side of his head. It's just small details like that, which are inventive uses of violence that's already occurred beforehand and like a natural kind of building as to what's already occurred. There's that great scene we see where Grey just cannot watch the torture 
of that black character who's one of the hitmen who's been asked to chase him. So, he turns his head away. Yeah. And yeah, it, it's great. almost comedic, isn't it? The way that his hand operates really quickly, carving up the face of that assassin off screen. We don't see it, right, as the audience. We don't see the actual cutting. We just see the result. Yeah. And for a movie that's so violent, that's a nice effective piece of not showing that happening as, as the character of Grey sort of can't himself bear to watch. Yeah, it's a very fun sequence of ultra-violence. <laughs> totally. I'll give a bit of criticism here now, though, in relation to something which doesn't work, and this could be related to its budget. I do feel they shouldn't have tried to dress up a few of the cars to be modern-looking cars, because there's about three hero cars, a cop car, the car at the start that crashes, and another car, and they just stand out like dog's balls because they're being filmed on the road amongst regular Hondas and Fords from 2018. It just looks a bit goofy. And if you don't have the budget to try and convert the car, just use contemporary cars and just say they're electric cars. There's a great example where in the film Gattaca, they have electric cars in the future. But what they do is they use classic cars, like cars from the 50s, because the inference is that classic car will always be a classic car. And let's replace the sound of the petrol engine with the slight drone of an electric car. And that just works much more effectively, I think, of conveying modern cars or cars in the future than this idea of trying to mix up this car looks very obviously dressed up. You know, it looks like a Prius with lots of plastic on the top. So just from that point of view, that to me kind of, I guess, reveals the cheapness of the production. It's a small criticism, but just nonetheless, it's a point where it takes me out of the movie momentarily. I mean, I suppose because of the film's budget, there's always going to be small things like that. Weirdly, I mean, that didn't bother me. I didn't actually notice the current model or 2018 model cars in the background. But yeah, okay, fair point. Any criticisms at all before we move on to the next review? No, I mean, I think it'd be interesting to talk about Venom for me in light of that, what we talked about earlier, of Upgrade feeling fully committed to what it set out to be. So maybe let's jump to Venom. Done. So walk me through it. What did you love and hate about Venom? Look, if I was to to describe anything as I love it, it would maybe be Tom Hardy's performance, which, you know, he's really going for a thing here. You feel like this is a movie where Tom Hardy was kind of undirectable. Like, the director was just like, oh, you, that's what you're going to do. All right, then, let's do that. That he was really just doing his own thing. And for me, Tom Hardy's performance is the thing that really works in this movie. And by works, I mean I find entertaining. Yeah, 100%. I feel that when Tom Hardy committed this film... Everyone said, oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, Tom Hardy wants to be in our side project spin-off Spider-Man anti-hero film. Okay, we should just be really thankful for that because he played Bane in The Dark Knight Rises. And, you know, he played two characters. He played twins in that film Legends. He knows what he's doing. He's a British actor with great acting chops. Let's just let Tom Hardy make his choices and rolling We're filming now, and you can just see that this feels like the best and worst of actors experimenting and indulging. Totally. It's like a can of ham has been unleashed upon the screen in the most epic way. There's just some bizarre acting ticks and things he does in this that are so 
odd and funny and kind of weird. He's always twitching and looking up and looking down and looking around and doing these oddball choices. There are so many ticks. It's like two cans of spam have just crashed on a highway. Max Ham. And it's Max Ham Spam. It's incredible. The thing about those ticks, though, is that they're not even related necessarily to Venom. Like, <laughs> totally. He's doing it at the beginning of the movie. That's yeah. right. That's right. Like, so, he's making big choices before he's even contaminated by this alien being, which makes it more bizarre. So, let me just say this up front. I really enjoy Venom. I disagree with a lot of the criticism by both fanboys and more conventional critics. What was the main criticism? Like, what was the- thrust of that. The main criticism, the recurring theme was that this film is a flashback to 1990s superhero adaptations and everything that's wrong with those. It's a pre-Marvel cinematic universe world. It's more in the vein of Spawn or what else came out in the 90s. You mean the best superhero movie that's yet been made, Blade and Blade 2? Well, that's the funny thing. Those two films, we both love Blade. Slight segue for our podcast listeners. But Gabe and I are huge fans of Blade 1 and 2. Me, not so much Blade 1, but I think Blade 2 is one of the best comic book adaptations of all time. Oh, it's great. So good. So putting those two aside, apparently many um, fanboys and so on feel that this this film has a tone that is reflective of the 90s where people were unsure about superhero films and didn't quite jump in boots and all to coloured costumes and sticking close to the source material. Yeah, I mean, you've got Eminem doing the theme at the end, which Eminem is pretty 90s. And the whole movie does, I suppose, have a kind of like (laughs) new metal vibe, sort of Papa Roach vibe. Don't you think one of the reasons why people criticised Venom, though, is because- They had a lot of fun with it and in some respects took the piss out of the genre and that upset the fanboys who take this very, very seriously. Possibly, yeah. I mean, look, to be honest, I haven't read any reviews of Venom. It's one of those movies which weirdly I feel like, "Eh, what's the point of reading the reviews? It's interesting talking about um, it in relation to Blade and Blade 2, though, and earlier you having said this was a originally conceived as a more violent movie and them having got Tom Hardy a serious thespian. Although, that being said, he's hugely hammy in lots of his movies. That's the thing that feels like it's missing from this. Upgrade is unashamedly violent. There's clearly scenes in this that look like they were designed to actually see Venom chomp off a guy's head and they don't. And for me, it really suffers for that? Yeah, I agree. There's the original pitch for this film that was the R-rated horror version that was somewhere in the Deadpool rating, not for necessarily crude jokes and coarse language, but at least for violence. And then basically they realised this film could be bigger than what it was, and so they cut that stuff out. But it's a shame because I think in some respects, if you're going to have a Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde-like premise with someone who essentially becomes a murderous alien, then lean into it. Oh, absolutely. And it also means that the sequences that are sort of played for violent laughs in a way, you know, there's that scene at the end where he's in the convenience store, whatever you call them in America. Yeah, it's the coda scene at the very, very end of the film. Yeah, and he eats a guy in front of the woman working there. And it's sort of weird because it all appears off screen, but he's ostensibly killed this bloke for having tried to rob the store. 
And it just feels like it'd be funnier if you actually saw Venom eat him. As you don't see it, it's just like, oh, is he just a murderous... I don't know, it neuters the thing and makes... It's really hard to describe because there's that odd thing where weirdly comic ultraviolence can be quite funny, which is kind of a fucked up thing to say because really at the end of the day, he's murdering a guy. Like the, the, the punishment does not fit the crime. But to do that, you've really got to lean right into the the stupidity of the thing. And especially because Venom is what he is, that big goofy looking, big smiley face, teethy. So yeah, it just feels, I don't know. What's that term for not neutered when you're firing blanks? <laughs> Emasculated. No, not that term. Sterile. Yeah, that'll do. And I wonder if you might be able to tell me if one of the reasons a lot of the people did this movie is so that they could do that kind of thing. And then they didn't. 100%. If you hire the director of Zombieland, you're referencing Deadpool and how successful those R-rated superhero films can be. So, thus getting past a previous hurdle as to why producers weren't prepared to spend $100 million on that type of edgy film. And then you kind of choose material that's very much suited to a horror-like depiction. It is a shame that you pull your punches and kind of cop out. I mean, one of the reasons why this film wasn't going to share the same universe as Spider-Man is because it was going to be violent. I assume it was always going to have the sense of comedy which it did. I don't think they traded in one thing for the other. I think it was going to be something like Evil Dead, one of your classic favourite films. Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2. Which balances both horror in the form of body horror with comedy. And they just sort of dropped the horror part. Yeah. I think things that work about this film, let's jump to that, shall okay. we? So there's the idea of having this Jekyll and Hyde character works well. We saw an upgrade and- it works really well. I think Tom Hardy's performance does work for this film, but they are big choices and they do come off. I think there's a version of this film which would be more serious and less goofy and that would be just as good. I don't know if it'd be any better, but I do think it's fun. And apparently Tom Hardy during the making of this film improvised a lot and something like that scene with the lobsters where he wants to cool down, he jumps into this huge like lobster tank in a restaurant in front of his girlfriend and her new boyfriend to cool down and then to eat those lobsters raw. That was something that he was inspired to do on the spot. And apparently there were many instances of that kind of thing. So he was obviously enjoying chewing the scenery and he also played Venom as a stand-in, even though it was a CG character. So he was very much getting to the spirit of playing both versions of that personality so Ben, yeah. that scene, right, with the lobsters, people say, oh, that was improvised. That might have been improvised in a block through or something. But movies like this, they've lit that lobster tank. They've set up cameras for Michelle Williams close up and for him to get in there and stuff. I don't really think it was improvised in the same sense of those of a improvisational movie where actors are free to walk anywhere they want and the cameraman will simply follow them. You're 100% right. What they did was they were shooting the scene and he suggested he jump in the tank. Right. So apparently the production staff spent all night strengthening and rebuilding the glass tank. Right, right. To accommodate shooting him the next morning. Okay, that makes much more sense than a sort of Cassavetes-esque, loosely improvised, oh, look, Tom's wandered off again. Okay, that yeah, makes exactly. much more sense yeah, to me. Yeah, exactly. 
Some things which don't work for me about the film, some of those choices by Tom Harding are too big. I think Michelle Williams has got a terrible wig, just a side note. That's <laughs> okay. just silly. I find some of the sequences where Venom and Riot are fighting to be indecipherable in terms of they're meant to depict each other kind of almost blending into each other in many respects. That's sort of the intention, the stated intention by the filmmakers. But it does make a bit of a mishmash of CG at times. Oh, that weird symbiote, I don't know, fuck fest at the end where they're just sort of all smooshing together. This is, again, one of those comic book movies where, to be honest, you could just skip 20 minutes of CG tomfoolery at the end and not really felt like you missed anything. As Mr. Scorsese said, you know, it's a theme park ride and that part of the ride, perhaps, it's just not for me. I find it all a bit dull. The part I love is the banter backwards and forwards between Venom and Eddie Brock. Like, in any other movie, I do feel many directors wouldn't have given Venom a character. He would have just been a malevolent voice talking in Eddie Brock's ear. But there's some great lines, some absolute clangers by Venom. One where he refers to him being a loser on his own planet, just like Eddie Brock, which are hilarious and personalise this alien entity as a distinct personality. Like It's an interesting motivation for him, isn't it? I was a loser on my planet. So, I mean, he's not a loser on Earth. He's a mass murderer. But how great is that? Because in every other film, you just assume because he is this incredible force that he's going to be like a hero on his home planet. But it's a bit like Superman, right? Superman isn't actually a hero on his own planet. He doesn't have extra strength on his own planet. He's just a regular guy. But his powers are amplified once he's on Earth. It's similar with Venom. He just, not only is he just a regular guy, he's actually a bit of a loser in his own words, but has superpowers here on Earth. That's really cool because then it plants the idea that Venom has insecurities. But together with Eddie Brock, who has his own insecurities and issues, they make a more holistic one. That's a really cool idea. Yeah. I presume we'll never see a movie where we see Venom on his home planet living like a schnook. Apparently, in the opening scenes of the screenplay, there was actually a depiction of Venom's planet. Like loser Venom kicking around there and everyone making fun of him. Yeah, but I can't recall how that would look. It would be basically this black blob just kind of like or like sliding down the sidewalk, down the pavement, and being teased and bullied by other blobs. <laughs> yeah, like, totally. <laughs> what's his form? Like, what's his form on his home planet? I can't even imagine what his form is because we see his form here, essentially a big blob of plasticine or black flubber. Yeah, a flubber planet where, like, various wisecracking, meany flubbers hack shit on uh, poor Venom. I'd watch the heck out of that. Hang on. Pull on the handbrake. That could be for our sequel pitch later okay. on this podcast sure. episode. That's why they brought in Andy Circus for the sequel. A lot of mocap of people playing flubbers. <laughs> I love it. The only other note I'll make is I do think the production design and the costume design of Woody Harrelson's surprise cameo playing the character to be Carnage in the final mid credit sequence is terrible. He resembles- wig. The red wig is straight out of Sideshow Bob from The Simpsons. It looks really bad. Is that from the comics? I don't know. Apparently so. But, like, you can do curly red hair in a more naturalistic way. And this looks like the cheapest wig bought at the Halloween costume shop. And combined with Woody Harrelson's very expressive Willem Dafoe-esque face, just hamming it up with another can of Spam. Yeah, he looks like Annie. 
you know Annie from the 1980s? Yeah, totally. Annie? Totally. Yeah. looks like Annie. Yeah, I knew totally. there was always a dark side to Annie. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> when Annie goes bad, when Daddy Warbucks leaves Annie behind, Annie yeah. ends up as a serial killer. So, all in all, I had a lot of fun with Venom. Any final thoughts, Gabe, before we move on to the awards? No, I think- I wish I had seen a more violent one, but but I was I guess I was pretty pleasantly surprised by it. I've got to say I do love Tom Hardy's choice as a very serious reporter to be always carrying around his little notepad that he refers to. It's yeah, like, totally. That was Tom Hardy's idea. Like, oh, I'm playing a reporter. What do reporters do? They have little notepads. Yeah, I was watching him interview Riz Ahmed's character inside that SpaceX type facility, and Tom Hardy's holding that notebook and reading from it, and I was thinking. I've never seen a reporter, A, dress so shabbily, even on a cool network, but also reading his notebook like that. Most reporters aren't reading their notepad on screen. Like, that's for their notes behind the camera. Whereas he's just sort of reading this scrawl in front of the camera in this staccato-like way, as you say, like lots of ticks and affectations pre-being contaminated by Venom, he doesn't come across as a great reporter on No, screen. he's a terrible reporter. And he's supposed to be like the world's greatest investigative reporter or something. Yeah. Also, he's got no tact, no sense of like, he just barges in there and asks his tough questions. It feels like he would have been actually a better reporter if he was 10 years younger on Vice or Vox's YouTube channel. Yeah, like, totally. That seems more suited to his journalistic style. Totally. All right, before we go on, any plot holes or missed opportunities? Like what could the filmmakers have done better with these high concepts, if anything? Lady Venom, that was weird. They could have done more with that. (laughs) It's sort of a bizarre sequence. It is bizarre, isn't it? I like how they kind of give her like an obvious feminine form like breasts and narrow hips and so on. What am I supposed to think of this? Like, yeah, I think you meant to think it's sexy. Okay. But is that Venom's idea? Like, is that the symbiote's idea of kind of like, ooh, here we go? Well, there's actually a whole Reddit thread or a thousand Reddit threads about the potential gay relationship between Venom and Eddie Brock. And that scene is cited as one of those examples where when Venom has overtaken the body of Eddie Brock's girlfriend- and goes to kiss Eddie and thus then get transferred back to Eddie, that's Venom's opportunity to share his affections for Eddie, his host. Ah, yes, because that would be Venom kissing Eddie, not her, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. I love those sorts of things. Ah, do we ever see Venom's feet? Ooh, look out. <laughs> look out indeed. All right, let's jump to a bit of trivia. Let's start with casting woulda, shoulda, couldas. Who else might have ended up in this movie? So, with Upgrade, being so low budget, there's less to read about. And I would just also say they probably couldn't have been too choosy as to who they cast. So, I couldn't find any alternative actors. So, let's start with Venom. In that case, apparently before Riz Ahmed was cast as Carlton Drake, Matt Smith and Pedro Pascal were considered for the part. Yeah, right. I can see either of those guys doing it, I suppose. I mean, I love Riz Ahmed in movies, so. Yeah, I think Riz Ahmed is fantastic in this role. His accent sounds great for a Brit. I think he's very engaging. He comes across as quite charismatic with those children, which is a really good scene to include up front to try and show the humanity of him. But also when you see those quick turns when he's very happy to sacrifice many of those human lab rats, he's very believable and you, you totally buy into his dark side. Speaking of dark side- 
Apparently, Jackie Earl Haley expressed interest in playing the role of Carnage. And so did Lin-Manuel Miranda. Really? <laughs> yep, apparently. I mean, I'm not saying he couldn't do it, but it seems bizarre, you know, the star of Hamilton and so on's like, oh, perhaps I could play. Maybe he's just a big late 80s, 90s comic book fan and that's his dream. Yeah, I think Venom's one of those characters that Tom Hardy has always liked and apparently Tom Hardy's son liked Venom. So, I think people make these choices based on some sort of history they have for the character not necessarily based on the script or the director before them. Uh, apparently, as well, Sony considered Alan Tudyk as Carnage, which is weird because Carnage is barely in the film. But there was a, one stage uh, a case where the character of Riot was going to be played by Carnage because, in my mind, those two characters are kind of interchangeable. So I guess with Alan Tudyk having done motion capture as a robot in Rogue One, that was probably their thinking. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay, sure. And weirdly, Gary Ross, he of Pleasantville, was in talks to direct the film. Surprise, oh, surprise. Okay. What's the last movie he made? Did he make Ocean's 8? Did he direct he that? He did. He oh, did. Okay. Yeah, he was considered to be an unusual take in the uh, the Me Too era to have sort of this older white male guy do that film. But, yeah, he did Ocean's 8. And uh, he's also famous for that horse riding film, Seabiscuit. Not bad. Pretty good movie. Yeah, good film. All right, let's play Spot the Aussie. Now, obviously, with upgrades, it's going to be very easy. So, I guess it's like everyone. <laughs> yeah. Well, except for Logan Marshall Green. There was Melanie Valio, who played his wife, Asha Trey. She's an Aussie. There was Harrison Gilbertson playing the Elon Musk character. Another Elon Musk-esque character. Is that basically a shorthand for any really wealthy, inventive guy who might have a dark side? Yeah, I guess so. Probably. Like some- Billionaire with extreme hubris. Exactly. And there's Benedict Harding or Benedict Hardy playing Fisk. So, how about Venom? Any Aussies in that? I don't think so. I didn't spot anyone. No. And perusing IMDb later, no one jumped out. But I suppose on this pod episode, we are, we're equaled by the bounty of riches that appear in <laughs> Upgrade. All right, let's jump to Big Trouble in Little Production. Couldn't find any good or bad news about the making of Upgrade, but with Venom, apparently Tom Hardy drew upon the inspiration of MMA fighter Conor McGregor when developing his character because he wanted to have a scrap with everyone. And he also mentioned being inspired by the neuroses of Woody Allen and Harrison Ford from Indiana Jones and the animated series Ren and Stimpy. Ah. Yeah, I mean, I would see him being inspired by cartoons and so on. Now, remind me, Venom is the movie where he, at the premiere or something, said the best 80 minutes aren't in this movie or something, right? Yeah, that's right. Right. I'm assuming he's referring to all of his ad-libbing, that basically the director and editor went, ooh, I think we've got enough. Yeah, which he had to walk that back almost immediately, didn't he? He did. But, I mean, the film's, you know, a reasonable, what, 90-plus minutes, so- I don't think there's any more room to have any more antics. But, yeah, I feel that this is a bit like Jared Leader playing the Joker in Suicide Squad and that there was a lot of stuff there that just wasn't relevant for the actual plot. Totally. But perhaps he took great pride in what he'd been able to conjure up on set. Yeah, I think he becomes Venom like 40 minutes in and though that first 40 minutes or whatever isn't a boring 40 or 35 or whatever, if he was – Bitter about his favourite 40 minutes of the film not being in the movie. I don't think you'd want 80 minutes of Eddie Brock wandering around 
before he even turned into the titular Venom. Yeah, exactly. I agree. All right, let's jump to marketing methodology, madness and missteps. So I mentioned earlier the YouTube trailer by an innovative YouTube editor that compared both films to each other. But the other controversy at the time was that when Venom released its first trailer, there wasn't a single shot of the titular character at all. Venom didn't appear. It was just scenes of Tom Hardy on a motorbike and Tom Hardy racing through a forest and bursting through a dead tree stump. And everyone criticised it because we didn't actually see a Venom. Maybe they were still doing the VFX or deciding on the look of the thing. I thought the first trailer ended with the, that shot of Venom after the motorbike chase, I think. But, yeah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, no, apparently they were doing the visual effects still, so it wasn't complete. And I think it's a wise call. Like, if you haven't finished the visual effects, don't risk being torn limb from limb. Yeah, get Sonic for- the Hedgehog or something. Exactly, exactly. So I think it wasn't a good reaction to the film, first of all, but better to not show anything than to show something crap. Totally. So let's jump to the big awards. Let's start with the box office champ. Okay, I think you know the answers to these, so I won't even ask you. Let's start with Upgrade. So Upgrade had a budget of $5 million and it made pretty impressive $12 million US at the domestic box office plus $2.5 million foreign for a grand total of $14.5 million worldwide, but probably made as much, if not more, on video on demand, I suspect. Yeah, this is really one of those movies where it's a shame that Box Office Mojo or whatever doesn't have those figures because it seems a little unfair, I suppose, to even though, as you say, you know, that's almost triple its budget, it seems a bit unfair to be like, oh, that's its total, though, yeah, like you say, we, it would made as much probably on, on VOD, where most people would have watched it. Yeah, 100%. In contrast, Venom had a budget of $100 million US, which is probably about half of many comparable superhero films these days, which have yeah, been I'm made surprised. for between $150-$200 million. It made $214 million at the US box office, plus... 643 million for foreign for a pretty damn impressive worldwide total of 856 million dollars. And apparently of that total box office globally, 75% was from international sales. This film was huge in China in particular. I think it felt like one of those movies before it came out that seemed destined to tank, then totally. surprised everyone by being, yeah, like a huge smash hit. Yeah, for a character who was only a side character in Spider-Man 3, has traditionally been a villain, not an anti-hero, for them to basically reconceive the character as an anti-hero without Spider-Man, without any post credit scenes or Easter eggs or any possible link to Spider-Man or the Marvel Cinematic Universe That's really impressive to make that much money, given how little awareness there would have been of that character. So that's pretty incredible. So I'm amazed by that. Let's jump to the Rotten Tomatoes. So have a guess which one came out on top. Um, I feel like Upgrade would have been pretty well reviewed, right? Yeah, Upgrade smashed it. Well done, Upgrade. 87% on the tomato meter, which is pretty amazing for a low-budget science fiction horror film. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, it's great. Um, and 
In comparison, Venom was smashed by the critics with 29%. I mean, I think both of those figures seem pretty unsurprising, right? Yeah, I think that's pretty much reflective of what everyone felt. So let's jump to the audience score in comparison. Have a guess which one the fans loved. I feel like Venom is one of those movies which was made for the fans and it would probably have a much higher audience score than critic score, right? You nailed it. Yeah. Yep. Upgrade has 87% versus Venom's 80%. So for Venom to have 80% approval, it's pretty fantastic. Interestingly enough, only 39,000 people voted for that score, which is really interesting because we've reviewed other movies like Enemy, The Double, Saving Private Ryan, The Thin Red Line, and those films have had 150,000 plus people review them. To have only 40,000 people chip in with their view on Venom when it's made $850 million around the world. That's odd. Yeah. I mean, I don't know what type of weirdo actually rates movies on Rotten Tomatoes. So, that's always a mystery to me. I mean, on IMDb, it's got, I don't know, 300,000 people have given it a score of, I don't know, just under seven or something like that. So, yeah, it is a bit curious. Who owns Rotten Tomatoes? Is it Warner Brothers? Maybe there's some big conspiracy here that I don't care about or care to get into. <laughs> you know what? I'm sure someone, Gabe, has a conspiracy theory on that. So, I think sure. a studio has bought Rotten Tomatoes. But let's save that debate for another day. Yeah, that'll never, ever come because fuck it. That's right. All right, let's go to the awards. Ding, ding, ding. Let's go. Okay, let's bang through these bad boys. Starting with best title, Upgrade or Venom. Which one do you think? I do love a one-word title. Both of these are pretty good to me. Yeah, they're both great titles, but you've got to choose just one. The Sophie's Choice of Titles. Uh, Which one is it going to be? Don't make me choose. Okay, I'll choose Upgrade. Yeah, I like both these titles a lot, actually. I like Upgrade, and I've got to say, when I heard Lee Winnell was doing a film called STEM, i got to say, I wasn't that jacked about the title. It just sounded like one of the iPad apps that my kids have on their iPad, which they have to do for coding. Upgrade says it all. It refers to, it sounds like a genre film. It describes what actually happens in the film. It's evocative. I think it's a great title. So I think we both agree. Upgrade's the winner. It's also right. weird that there's not movies, a hundred other movies called Upgrade. I mean, there are other movies called Upgrade, but I'm surprised a more a previous high profile movie hadn't called itself Upgrade. Yeah, I agree. It's one of those titles, as soon as you hear it, you think, oh, surely that, that's been used before and used by a big Hollywood film. Yeah. But, but no. So good choice. Let's jump to the poster. Now, in the absence of our viewers not having a poster in front of them, let me very briefly describe it. Upgrade sort of has a very classic 70s, 80s minimalist style poster, totally buying into this whole idea of an A-grade, B-grade horror sci-fi. It's mainly two-thirds black at the bottom of the poster, and at the top it has the main guy, Logan Marshall Green, looking directly towards the viewer, kind of close up with the words in red upgrade. And there's kind of like these red lines behind him. The tagline is, not man, not machine, more. And in comparison, there were a few posters for Venom. One has the classic floating heads where it has the characters in the foreground, small characters on the horizon with sort of Venom in like looming over the top. I guess Venom is sort of replacing the classic floating head. 
The other poster, which is pretty cool for Venom, actually has half of Eddie Brock's face, Tom Hardy, exposed, and Venom on the other half of the face. So really trying to connect to this whole Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde concept. And actually, apparently, the that particular poster of Venom is inspired by Spider-Man 2, where we see in Spider-Man 2, the one which had Tobey Maguire, it depicts him kind of with half of his mask torn off, implying that he's been in a huge fight with someone and is seriously damaged and kind of tying to this whole idea of living between two worlds. So which one is your favourite poster? Oh, look, I think the Venom posters are more effective as a piece of film marketing. I kind of feel like, what would you call it, a enthusiastic fan designer could make a better upgrade poster. I see what you're saying, what they're going for, but it's certainly not as like evocative or memorable as, say, the original Terminator poster or something like that. I weirdly thought maybe my contrast on my computer screen was set wrong and there was something in that large area of black on the poster. Like, I just couldn't see something. Like, there was some sort of, I don't know, very low-con dark image in there. But there's not. There's just two-thirds of the space are left empty. So, kind of curious. Yeah, I think it's a missed opportunity. I can see what they're going for with the upgrade poster, but I don't think it conveys anything about the film. And I feel like there's another poster design out there in the atmosphere somewhere that would be a better representation of the film and possibly get more people to download it. So, Absolutely. let's give it to Venom in this case. Give it to Venom in this case. Okay, the Bill Fleck Big Break Award, named after American indie actors Billy Bob Thornton and Ben Affleck. Who got their big break in either of these twin movies? Well, surely the clear winner is Lee Whannell, right? Off the back of this, he's doing Invisible Man and he's also attached to Escape from New York. Yeah, I agree. Lee Whannell cleans up here. I think this sort of has launched his career up to the next level. And he was already doing incredibly well, but this has sort of branched him out beyond the horror franchises of Saw and Insidious. And I think given him the opportunity to play with a much bigger canvas and make films that either are closer to his heart or expand his expertise. So, yeah, yeah. yeah Lee Whannell. It's interesting because I couldn't, I would, if someone told me they were going to remake Escape from New York, I'd kind of hate that idea. But having seen Upgrade, it feels to me like if someone's going to do it, he is the perfect choice for it. 100%. I agree 100%. I'm really looking forward to seeing what he does with both films. So, absolutely. Yeah. Wishing him all the best. Like he's just kicking goals. It's amazing. All right. So, when Al takes it out with Upgrade, next, the Before They Were Famous Award or Blink and You'll Miss Them. So, starting with Upgrade. Now, these films are both recent films, so not many of the actors had a chance to really leverage their opportunities. Anyone jump out of these films that you thought, oh, okay, like, they're going to kick on? Like, oh, Melora Waters, we're going to hear big things from her. Well, no, th- in this case, it's the opposite in terms of before they were famous. Oh, like, totally. this is the being, reverse being, of that. I was being sarcastic, Ben. Oh, right. <laughs> Look, to be honest, nobody, like you say, these movies are a year old. It's not like we go, oh, wow, the Wayne Pierre who played Dr. Emerson is a huge star now. Yeah, totally. I think this is a case of who should we keep our eye on. And I've got to say, I thought Benedict Hardy, who played Fisk in Upgrade, knew exactly what he was doing. He knew what the role requires. He has a particular look, which 
is more unconventional for those types of hitman type characters. He's starring in Wanell's next film, The Invisible Man. So I'm going to say keep your eyes on Aussie Benedict Hardy. Yeah, I think that's fair. And actually, just on that, I think it is a really great choice to have had him as the sort of main antagonist for most of the movie because, yeah, he's not physically – it would have been easy to get uh, someone much more physically domineering or something, but he brings a really nice sort of unique quality to the role. So giving it to Benny seems like a, a nice one. And Benny also kicked ass literally and figuratively in that fight scene about two-thirds of the film with Logan Marshall Green when – it's basically two versions of STEM up against each other. And in terms of physicality, Benedict Hardy totally brings it. Like, it's a really well choreographed fight scene because you're very conscious of the blocking because each character is being controlled by their AI chip. So it does sort of reflect in some ways that fight scene, the dojo and the matrix between Morpheus and Neo, where it's like block, punch, block, punch. But it makes total sense because- both these characters, in terms of their AI, are absolute equals. So no one can get a punch in because they have the same expertise. And so the actors do a great job, I think, of conveying that really, really well. So props to Benny up that one. Let's jump to the Tommy Lee Jones Stiller Award. Who stole the show despite being in a small or poorly written role? Starting with Upgrade. Who stole the show in Upgrade? I'd say Benedict Hardy again. Yeah. Like we said, he totally makes the most of the most of his role. Okay. How about Venom? Woody Harrelson. <laughs> Woody Harrelson? Ha <laughs> ha. I'll give it to Dr. Dan. I think Reed Scott was actually really funny. I really like him as another character called Dan in Veith. So I thought he was just a different version of the boyfriend character you would ordinarily see in this film. Ordinarily, yeah, I, I liked him. He'd be a real, you know, sleaze or he'd be really jealous. Whereas I actually thought he played the absolute opposite of this. Like he wasn't sleazy. He wasn't jealous. He was quite understanding. He seemed three-dimensional. So I'm going to give it to Reed Scott playing Dr. Dan Lewis. So of those two, is it a tie? Yeah. I think ultimately I'll give it to Benedict. Okay. <laughs> sure. All right. The- Formerly known as Dustin Diamond Award, now known as the Tom Sizemore Award, who didn't make the most of their opportunities after appearing in these films? And again, it's early days, but who should be kicking on? Who do we think should be really leveraging these films going I forward? I sort of feel like this is a hard one. Again, one year ago, I don't know if Jenny Slate's appearance in Venom is going to lead to... Uh- <laughs> What do you think? I'm a really big fan of Benedict Hardy taking his CV and his uh, YouTube Vimeo URL to the uh, streets of Hollywood and pounding the pavement to get extra work. I think he should be trying to leverage this film and The Invisible Man for more American opportunities. So if I was his agent, that's my advice. Right. So we're giving every award to Benedict Hardy. So far he's cleaning up, yeah. All right. Let's jump to the Winner Winner Chicken Dinner Award. Who came out on top in each of these movies and was it their career high? So I think we're going to say upgrade. I think Lee Lee Winnell takes it again. Is that right? Absolutely. For reasons previously stated. How about Venom? Well, I think given that people probably thought this would be a tank and it was such a huge hit, weirdly maybe Tom Hardy? Yeah, I think so. I think all of the blame and success fell on his shoulders. I don't think Ruben Fleischer was going to 
have his career flush down the toilet as a result. He took on doing the sequel to Zombieland, which is Zombieland Double Tap 10 years later. And some did speculate that the reason why he bailed on doing a sequel to Venom is because he may have anticipated Venom tanking. So I guess that's a possibility, but I think Tom Hardy had everything to gain and everything to lose. And I think it paid off in spades for him in terms of creative control, I'd say, and his leading man status and having a franchise. So, yeah, I agree. I reckon it's Tom Hardy. Great. Give it to Tom. All right. Tom takes it. Okay. The best dialogue award. And there are some absolute classics. All right. What have you Let's got? start me. with Upgrade. Upgrade, there aren't many. And I always struggle to try and say these quotes because I'm a terrible actor. You've been hard on yourself, mate. Oh, really? Oh, thanks, Gabe. Oh, thanks yeah. so much. Yeah. Really appreciate that. Yeah. That, thanks that's for right. the badge of confidence. That's all right. There's one line where Grey Trace says, see, you thought I was a cripple, but you didn't know I'm a ninja. And then so Stem in his brain says, while I am state of the art, I am not a ninja. And that kind of plays out in an action scene and it sounds terrible when I repeat it, but it's kind of funny in context. Yeah, okay. I thought your performance of Stem there was pretty good. Oh, thanks so much. What about Venom? Really are, you gonna do, are you going to do the Venom voice? Like do eyes, lungs, pancreas, so many snacks, so little time, but do it in the Venom voice. Go. Eyes, lungs, pancreas, so many snacks, so little time. That's terrible. That sounds... Okay, the other line, of course, is um, (laughs) Venom says, So you'll be this armless, legless, faceless thing, won't you? Going down the street like a turd in the wind. Do you feel me? (laughs) Uh, And the other line is Eddie Brock. It's a bizarre bit, that one, isn't it? It's bizarre because it makes no sense because... (laughs) Like, who wrote that line of dialogue? Like, a turd is the last thing that can, quote, go down the street. So, for a start, it doesn't tumble, it doesn't roll, it just says it goes down the street. Now, how can a turd do that? Like, if it's a wet one, it can't. If it's a solid one, it can't. Like, it's just an odd thing to say. Like, a leaf, a speck of dust, fluff, Feather a dandelion. A feather? Yes. All these things are likely to be picked up in the wind. A turd of any sort would not. So it is very odd. And that was very much maligned and memed on social media when the first or the second trailer was released. So it is odd. Very small rocks. There's also Eddie Brock saying to Mrs. Chen in the convenience store, Oh, I have a parasite. Yeah. Good night, Mrs. Chen. (laughs) <laughs> and just walks out. Like, it's funny. Like, we talked about the delivery of names by the Aussie actor in Commando, where he goes, John, 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 John. We're referring to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Amazing. The way that Eddie Brock says Mrs. Chen is hilarious. And apparently, in an interview, Tom Hardy and Riz Ahmed both stated that their favorite line from the movie, this is both actors, is simply Tom Hardy saying, Mrs. Chen. Right. It is a great moment of PTSD-inducing for Mrs. Chen ultraviolence that occurs off-screen and is played for a laugh. I love it. Totally. All right. So, I think we have to give it to Venom, right? Totally. All right. The Nicolas Cage chewing the scene reward speaks for itself. (laughs) Upgrade or Venom? I think we know the answer to this, right? Yeah. Everyone knows the answer to this. Next award. Tom Hardy in Venom. Next award. The Taking a Paycheck Award speaks for itself. I don't think there was much of a paycheck for anyone to take an upgrade. Everyone probably did it for scale. As for Venom, what do you think? Woody Harrelson? 
Nah, because I presume he's promised some huge role in the sequel or whatever. And given the film's budget, I can't imagine Tom Hardy agreed to do Venom for some tiny amount of money. So, I don't know, probably in this one, is this an NA award? No, apparently Michelle Williamson did say that she did it for the money. She literally said she took a paycheck. Well- not a, yeah, exactly. She did say that she wanted to challenge herself. This is Michelle Williams, I should say, not Williamson. She did say she wanted to challenge herself a different genre, but she also did admit that this one was paying the bills. She has a relatively thankless role, so fair enough. Yeah, exactly. All right, moving on. The Stephen Toblowski Award, a.k.a. Hey, It's That Guy. So who triggered, hey, it's that guy? when he or she appeared on screen, starting with Upgrade. I guess because I'm Australian, there's a few people. Like, I think you said earlier, Clayton Jacobson plays the bartender. Yeah, he plays the bartender Manny, and that's who I had for this award week. Yeah. So, for him, I was like, oh, it's that guy. And I I suppose, though, if you're an American listener or an American viewer of the movie Upgrade, you might have no idea who Clayton Jacobson is. I suppose very most famously, he directed the movie Kenny. Right? Exactly. Yeah, that's right. He's basically a character with a big beard and his brother, Shane Jacobson, appeared as the factory owner at the end of, is it The Born Legacy with Jeremy Renner, believe it or not? Yeah, yeah. He turns up as a manager of a Filipino something. Pharmaceutical factory, I think. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, Clayton Jacobson's had some roles in things like Top of the Lake series and he's in Animal Kingdom- briefly, but um, it's certainly funny seeing him. Oh, look, there he is. That's Clayton Jacobson. Yeah, totally. But for me, the winner is, you mentioned her before earlier, Melora Walters playing the homeless woman Maria. (laughs) She of Boogie Nights and Magnolia, who I always thought would kick on to have a great career and be in every P.T. Anderson film, but then kind of vanished 20 years ago. Well, P.T. Anderson sort of disbanded his repertory cast. You know, there was that period of- his first three films, I guess, where he reused a lot of actors. And uh, I yearn for Louis Guzman and Melora Walters to reappear in a P.T. Anderson movie. Maybe there could be a spin-off film in the same way that this film, Venom, is a spin-off from the Marvel Spider-Man film. There could be a P.T. Anderson world-building spin-off film with Guzman and Melora Walters on the run. Ah, all right. There you go. But it was nice seeing her in this Albeit briefly is some crazy homeless lady who delivers the symbiote from her into Eddie Brock. Yeah, she was great. All right, Melora gets it. Okay, moving on. The Delroy Linda Award for great actors who aren't cast often enough. So, upgrade. Any particular people there who should get cast more often, do you think? No one jumps out in upgrade, perhaps like Melora Walters, who we just talked about. For me, anyway, did anyone, for you, appear and go, oh, they should- Yeah, mainly Riz Ahmed. I always think he's great. He played Carlton Drake and Riot. So, I would say Riz Ahmed from Venom can be in more films and I'd love to see those films. So, I'm giving it to- It can be in all films, really. Yeah, I'm giving it to Venom. Okay. The Memphis Reigns Award, inspired by the absurdly named character played by Nick Cage from Gone in 60 Seconds- so, which character steals the cake for the most ludicrous name? Oh, I love that Upgrade gave their characters genre movie names. I agree. I mean, some of them are just silly. Anyone in particular? I mean, Grey Trace, the main character's name, is just ridiculous. Right? Iran Keen. Yeah. Good stuff. In Venom, Eddie Brock. I mean, they're all from the 
comic book series. So for me, it's got to be Grey Trace. Totally. Upgrade, right? I mean, you could say, you know, Carlton Drake sounds very much like a comic book movie name. And I haven't read the Venom books. I presume there's a character in them called Carlton Drake. Is there? I'm assuming so. Yeah, I'm not actually right. deep into the Venom lore. So I'm going to assume that's actually canon. Right. Okay. Well, there you go. All right, the Memento Award, name for moments you completely forgot about until you rewatch these movies. I'm going to assume that it's something you forgot that Tom Hardy did. What do you think? It's tons of stuff I forgot that Tom Hardy did that just cracked me up. Take your pick. I forgot about the notepad. I forgot about the lobsters. I forgot about every time he does those weird twitches and stuff. So, it's bountiful, Tom Hardy's. I forgot about the part when he goes to his neighbour and then gets cranky at his oh, neighbour yeah. and his fame, famous momentarily changes and freaks the neighbour off. That was just kind of insane. I expected the neighbour who's playing very loud kind of metal music. You almost expect him to be like, whoa, crazy man, instead of just being freaked out because maybe he would think that Venom is also metal. Oh, I love it. That's a sequel. All right, the Die Hard Award, named after the influence of Die Hard and inspiring a subgenre of an everyday, everyday hero up against a group of baddies in a single location like Under Siege. So, did any of these films leave a legacy by inspiring a crop of clones? Well, I guess Venom's got a sequel coming, so there's that. An upgrade, apparently, according to the producer Jason Blum from Blumhouse, on Twitter suggested that an upgrade sequel is coming. But are there any other types of films that have really dived deep into this whole Jekyll and Hyde duality? You mean aside from... Jekyll and Hyde? Yeah, exactly. Are these movies too recent to have for us to be able to tell what their ongoing story legacy is? Yeah, I think we'll have to wait to see how time unfolds to see if we'll have the Upgrade 2 versus Venom 2 era in 2021. I'll see you then to discuss this then, Ben. Done. Okay, Gabe, it's come to that time of the podcast, the Milking the Speed Cow Dry Award, named after the infamous sequel Speed 2, which took the high stakes of a runaway bus in a crowded city and then relocated it to a sluggish cruise ship. So imagine this. Let's say there's an opportunity to make a sequel to Upgrade or Venom. They're both about an ordinary man who gains superpowers when he becomes the host of a malevolent being. So we know there's definitely a sequel of Venom 2 in the works directed by Andy Serkis, he of motion capture fame, playing Gollum. And this talk of an upgrade sequel, if we were asked to pitch a sequel to one of these films, first of all, which film do we do a sequel to and what's it going to be about? Mm, Good question. I do like that once the first big comic book movie is in a way out of the way, sequels don't have to spend, you know, 40 minutes with all of that setup and you can sort of just get straight into it. So weirdly in that way, a Venom Two, I'd be kind of excited for because, yeah, you don't have to do all that place setting. You can just go straight into that fun banter between Eddie Brock and Venom as they commit extra judicial killings on the streets of the city. So, you want to do a sequel to Venom? Well, but also Upgrade. The ending of Upgrade is both one of those great endings that's very self-contained, like it tells the end of that story, but you could easily see a sequel happening. I mean, are we allowed to reveal what the ending of Upgrade is here? Of course, spoilers ahead. It ends basically with Stem taking full control of Grey's body and Grey 
how would you describe what he's doing? He's living a fantasy life in his head where his dead wife is alive again. Would that be correct? Yeah, I agree. I mean, there's an interesting place where you could take the ending of Upgrade. However, I suspect our studio producer is looking at $850 million globally and saying, that's the film I want you to focus on for a sequel first. So based on that, let's do a sequel to Venom. Where do we start? Well, are we using the very sequel bait post-credit sequence setup? Are we having Woody Harrelson as 1982's Annie as Carnage? I think we have to, yeah. All right. So it's Venom versus Carnage. Did you ever see those Venom versus Carnage? To be honest, perhaps I'm not the guy to, and I'll never in fact say this to the our studio exec, I don't know anything about Carnage. Is he just Venom but red? I'm assuming that basically any similar looking hero in any film, think Iron Man, think, gee, think any superhero film, aren't they usually just similar but stronger? And the big right. challenge for the protagonist is to try and overcome a stronger, better, faster version of him. Think Vicky of the Rock Incredible in Hulk. Iron Man 2. <laughs> exactly. Sure. Uh, yeah, I guess. So I think Carnage is going to be red and angry and throbbing and going to be bigger, just like Riot was a more aggressive, meaner, stronger version of Venom. So there's that. Not knowing anything about Carnage at all, what are some basic plot elements that we could use to structure this as being a fresh take to expand on this whole Jekyll and Hyde dynamic going on? Like, is this a film where basically Eddie and Venom fall out of love, perhaps? And so one becomes a much more, having initially at the end of Venom embraced Venom as a, a being within him. They have a falling out, and so essentially Eddie Brock loses his powers or something like that. Yeah, I mean, Venom 1, we've already seen symbiote for symbiote mega fight, so they really have to come up with a way to make that more interesting again. Oddly, I was going to pitch to you, Ben, oh, perhaps, you know, we should see back more of Eddie Brock as a reporter investigating perhaps. I think they set Woody Harrelson up as a famous, he's like a prolific serial killer or something, right? Yeah, exactly. But it's weird because it's not like Eddie Brock can have the moral high ground over Cletus Cassidy or whatever his name is as a serial killer because Eddie Brock and Venom are mass murderers. I mean, yes, the for instance, the guy they kill at the convenience store is robbing it, but extrajudicial killings where he is judge, jury, and executioner, I mean, he's still committing murders. So, are we in the realm of it takes a killer to catch a killer? Do we want to hit that sort of moral ambiguity in the same way that it takes a symbiote to catch a symbiote? Oh, I like that angle because, as you say, it does seem disproportionate to bite the heads off people for robbing convenience stores. Yeah, or just being henchmen for a bad guy. <laughs> exactly. So, I like the idea it takes a killer to catch a killer. I also like the idea that essentially they have a falling out, Venom and Eddie Brock, and Venom abandons Eddie Brock or Eddie Brock pushes Venom aside, which I guess in some respects what happened in Iron Man 3 and various films like Superman 2, is it, where essentially the hero gives away their superpower to be an ordinary person, but then something happens to them and they need that power back, but they don't have it anymore. 
What happens yeah. to Superman when he gives away his power to be an ordinary man to be with Lois Lane? What happens then? I can't recall. Yeah, I can't really remember. It, it feels like one of those absolute classic superhero tropes and that the writers always find themselves in that problem of we've essentially got a character who's near indestructible. Yes, we could have a bigger, badder, Thanos-esque villain, but we need to now strip them of their of the thing that makes them that. So, yeah, I could imagine a, a sequel where Eddie Brock loses Venom for a good portion of the movie or they he has to get him back somehow. He's betrayed his trust. They've had a... They've broken up, as it were. Would there be a possibility where Eddie Brock basically has an affair, unquote, with the symbiote Carnage? Ooh. So Carnage takes over him. Possibly. Where's Venom gone? Venom's just, just to the side, seething. Just Venom's just Jealously, creeping, that's right. creeping both their Instagrams. So essentially becomes like a single white female of symbiotes. Huh. I can 100% imagine a walking into the meeting and being like, guys, what's your take on Venom? All right. It's the 1990s all over again. Bridget Fonda and Jennifer Jason Lee wowed you in single white female. Well, prepare thyself. <laughs> so we've got only five minutes left to try and pitch this. Let's go with what you said, which is that Carnage is on the loose of that character who plays Carnage, and he's a serial killer. And what's worse than a serial killer? It's a serial killer with superpowers. So yeah. to catch a killer, you've got to have a detective journalist also with superpowers. So it becomes basically a film structured around the tracking of a serial killer like Silence of the Lambs, but adding to the extra elements of these characters where this particular detective slash reporter also bites off heads, yeah, which is I the guess- extra element on top of it. We even have a sequence where we have, you know, like that Buffalo Bills sequence where- at the end, we think we're about to catch him and it's revealed it's the wrong location. Oh, All those types of serial killer thriller setups. What else? I think that pitch, actually, that there's that Silence of Lambs-esque angle is basically a good one in that Hannibal, though, is with you all the time, attached to you because he's the symbiote. I mean, to be honest, Ben, I know oftentimes our pitches just fall into ludicrous territory and are kind of jokey, but that doesn't sound half bad, an idea. And I suppose for the scale and so on, perhaps it ends up somehow in space back on their planet or whatever. You've got to give that to the studios, you know. You've got to give them that. But um, the idea of a investigative serial killer movie where a serial killer is symbiotic linked to Carnage and a Hannibal Lecter-esque, I think that's pretty good. And I think as well, to try and mix things up, rather than have- Michelle Williams's character kidnapped by the character, the serial killer slash carnage. It's the reverse. What happens is Eddie Brock is kidnapped, but Venom manages to escape and find his way back to Michelle Williams to try and reverse those gender norms. And just like the scene we saw where we see sexy Venom, basically Venom says, I need your help, Michelle Williams. And so- he then takes over her body with her agreement and then they go to rescue the original host, Eddie Brock slash Michelle's boyfriend. Yeah. What I do think you think? That would, it would give her something to do. Look, I'd also say throw in that little Pomeranian dog as well that gets taken over by the symbiote. So pretty good, Ben. Pretty good. Done. We've got it. What's our title going to be called? <laughs> Venom 2. <laughs> we need the audiences to really understand what they're uh, going to watch. <laughs> I reckon we call it Venom versus Carnage. 
Okay. That's in the history of Ben loving titles and giving you what you want. A hundred percent. This is how that. about Venom the Carnage? Just Venom colon Carnage. It's D- cleaner. Excellent. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is how you make a sequel to the worldwide smash Venom. All right, Gabe, that brings us to the end of the show. Where can listeners find more of your work and musings this week? At Twitter. No, at Twitter, on Twitter, at Gabe Dowrick. Yes, that makes more sense. Excellent. And I'm at Ben Phelps on Twitter and Instagram and youtube.com slash Ben Phelps. You can find all my podcasts, including Twin Movies, in the usual places like Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, folks, thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. This was fun. Take care and stay tuned for another Twin Movies battle very soon. Adios, Gabe. Sayonara, Ben. Sayonara, Ben.